The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser, and welcome to this episode of Security Clearance in Security on Federal News Radio. NISPOM Change 2 went into effect in May of 2016, codifying policies around insider threat training and mitigation for contractors within the defense industrial base. Still today, there are many questions, though, about insider threat and how to stop the next Snowden or Alexis. Those are continually hot topics for security offices today. So today we're talking with Tom Langer, principal of Atlantic Security Advisors, an industrial security risk mitigation and leadership organization, and also an advisor to Sims Software. Thank you so much, Tom, for being on the show. Thank you, Lindy. Appreciate it. So I saw a presentation you did recently at the annual NCMS seminar for security professionals on insider threat. So I'm going to admit... You did it with Charlie Phelan, who I'm a big fan of, and I love you guys, but I was a little shocked that it was a standing room only crowd for what I attended. When you think about NISPOM change too, went into effect five years ago. So why do you think insider threat is still this hot topic that security professionals and offices are looking for more insight and information about? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, I was surprised too, as was Charlie, that we had that big of a crowd. It was an amphitheater set up in Minneapolis at NCMS. When we asked the question about how many of you here are the insider threat program senior official, almost every hand went up. So they're not only the FSO or AFSO for their facility, but they're also the the insider threat program senior official, and they're looking for any guidance they could have. So I think back to your original question, there was a lack of clarity in the eyes of most of the FSOs about what DCSA was looking for when it came to good. Companies were limiting their insider threat program to just cleared personnel because that's what DCSA was asking for. And that's really their remit. They don't have the authority to tell you to establish it across the enterprise. And then just the overall challenge in so many companies are getting traction on yet another compliance program. So to look at insider threat from our perspective and even insider risk holistically, Charlie and I felt that you really needed a whole of business or mission perspective, what would be more beneficial to the organization. So understanding what insider risk and insider threat meant to your organization. And and I think that was a key thing that we were trying to communicate to folks that you could establish this across the enterprise. You should, in fact, establish it across the enterprise because uh, in the Aaron Alexis case, he didn't differentiate between cleared and uncleared when he started shooting people in the Navy Yard. It was a threat to the whole organization. We were trying to get folks to understand what, what you really needed to train for and what you really need to be aware of. So in our definition of both insider threat and insider risk, and there's a little bit of difference between the two of them, insider threat is really capacity plus intent equals threat. So the capacity is what you hire people for or train people to. They could be, you know, a financial wizard, an engineering protege, all kinds of different skill sets that people bring to organizations. And if they don't already have them, you train them for that. That becomes their capacity. What, What can they do either good or bad, to or for your organization. And then 
what's their intent? And that's the variable, right? So when somebody starts to go a little off the rails, their intent is what you're trying to detect. Insider risk is actually the same capacity that we talked about a second ago, minus management oversight. So there are people that are intentionally trying to do some harm, and then there are people that are trying to do the right thing but don't have the right guidance, and they do the wrong thing, or they're not being monitored properly, and that's your insider risk. So there's a lot more to this program than what you saw in Conforming Change 2, and I think people are just starved for more information. One of the points that you made at NCMS that I loved was you can't silo your reputation either. So we kind of, you know, if something hits your organization, it's going to hit across the organization. You can't really just throw that one entity under the bus and just say it happened there. Why should people outside of the security organization care? And then how can folks maybe in security help to get that buy-in across their company to actually care about this thing called insider threat? Right. I, I think it's got to be part of your culture within the organization, right? So it's important to try to shape a culture throughout the organization that really values reputational risk. Getting employees to understand the impact of their actions on the organization as a whole is going to pay long-term dividends. As, as we said, and you mentioned a moment ago, just because it's some division in North Dakota that has an issue, it carries the name of the entire organization. And it will be, I assure you, in the media reported as the entire organization. They probably won't be standing outside the little office in North Dakota. They'll be standing outside of the headquarters in Washington or New York reporting this event. So getting employees to understand the impact of their actions. And then think about from your own organization standpoint, the social media profiles of your employees who list their employment and how quickly their inappropriate posts become your reputational hit. You know, another parallel that I see is within the, the safety organization within multiple companies that I've either studied or worked in, there are nowhere near as many safety employees as there are security employees. Yet we really have fairly good or very strong actually safety programs because employees inherently think safety from their own personal life and they bring that same philosophy into the workplace. How do we get that same philosophy that we see within safety and the employees, the way they embrace safety, to get them embrace security. When in actuality, security is just as big of a threat now for them as safety ever was because just their own computer time on their personal profile, bullying to their children through social media, through texting or whatever. So there's a lot of different security aspects in people's personal lives that I think overwhelm them. So part of a good security program within an organization is actually train some of your employees on these security things that apply to their home and get them to begin to put that into their culture and then think about how does the reputation, how do what you put on social media now that you've announced that you belong to X, Y, and Z corporation, how does that affect the corporation? I love that. I feel like that's a great takeaway and something that a lot of companies or organizations should look to apply because I do think we feel this like almost true overwhelm with the amount of security issues and possibilities to kind of screw something up online. So how can companies really make that easier and kind of apply how what they're maybe doing for online safety or company safety, reputation management for their workplace, how that would also apply or transition or tips for how it actually you know, applies to them being safe and smart and secure online and what they do when they're not in the office. And that ties into my next question too. You asked at one point in the presentation for folks to raise their hand if they still had folks working remotely for a totally kind of cleared conference 
situation, I was surprised how many people raised their hand. I think this hybrid model is here to stay. And so we are going to have that moving forward where folks are going to have to try to mitigate, protect, train against insider threat while a segment of their workforce is not coming into the office, at least definitely not every day. How do you kind of think about remote work and insider threat? Does it change the model or is it business as usual or what makes that different? That's a great question because a lot of organizations, if I take some of the finance people I've known through my career, they would be celebrating that we're closing down these facilities and saving so much on overhead because of office space that we've reduced. But at the same time, there's a real, how, how do we integrate the new people we bring into an organization without bringing them into some social environment where they begin to know their coworkers and their coworkers know them? A lot of times the tips we get in the security program about an insider or someone who's taking a risk that probably shouldn't be taking a risk comes because they have a strong social network within the organization and someone sees something. So they say something, that, that, old, that old saying came from the Department of Homeland Security, see something, say something. How do you do that in a remote workforce? So I talked about diversity, dispersity, and inclusion. So it's not a play on words, I don't mean to diminish by one iota what we need to do to have a diverse and inclusive workforce. But the inclusion piece of diversity and inclusion is always the hardest, and it's gonna be harder still with a dispersed workforce. You know, the components of, of inclusion are listening, soliciting input, and then as a leader being comfortable with direction being challenged. It's harder now than ever to try to do this remotely. I think it's gonna remain a challenge, and I'm not sure we still know what the mix of remote versus on-site work is going to be. And we've always always had this challenge. We've, we have a lot of contractor companies where they send workers into the, the government organization. So they, they already have this dispersed workforce. And what I found in some of the work that I've done in this area is program manager is the key. That's the person that's going to be the touchstone when it comes to the dispersed workforce. And same is going to be true of managers in functional areas where they don't have a workforce that's in the building anymore. But I'm really more concerned about how do we form a social culture that actually makes people feel accountable and feel listened to. It's easy to hire a diverse workforce. It's very difficult to retain one if you don't value their input or they don't feel that their input is valued. That's the critical piece. And we talk about all the time when it comes to the diversity numbers within the IC, they can increase those attraction numbers, but the ability to retain folks through a career becomes a lot harder. So obviously you can't eliminate insider threats, but you can certainly can reduce risks. So what are some of the best ways for companies and organizations to try to do that? Yeah, well, first and foremost, security as a profession has to be approachable and react professionally to any lead that they receive on a fellow employee. You want to show a high degree of confidentiality and discretion when you're investigating what someone thinks might be happening with a coworker or when you've got reason to suspect a colleague is having an issue. So that, that professionalism is the only thing that's going to attract employees to come to us and share what they need to share. Secondly, training and openness. So you want to train your employees on what you do have for an insider threat, what expectation they can have of privacy, and what you're going to monitor. We give a lot of authority to our employees uh, in certain functions, and there should be no surprise when they hear that we, we trust you, but we're going to verify you're doing what you should be doing. That's just a check and balance that we owe uh, our shareholders or the owners of our businesses. And then team approach. On an insider threat program, you're going to need multiple disciplines involved in the insider risk and threat. So that would be HR, 
uh, your IT department, both delivery and security. So IT delivery and IT security. Communications, because they're the ones that actually monitor what's going on with social media and mentioning the company. We want to know when somebody's saying something that they shouldn't be saying. Unfortunately, the uh, Highland Park shooting in Illinois. That alleged shooter had a lot of postings on social media that showed a strong propensity towards violence and school shooting. And there were clues and indicators that he was giving out there. And then internal audit, ethics and legal. Internal audits may not sound like the most logical person to have within the insider threat team, but they frequently see something when they're doing their audits throughout the organization. And the meetings that you have as a team can give them some suggestions or ideas of where they may want to go with an internal audit somewhere down the line. Finally, have a system of record for all of this. So you're going to want a security management software that interfaces with all the other systems of record, such as HR, and then use that to see your whole organization. Because as we mentioned before, the little site up in North Dakota the, that's actually had a problem employee, you can see that on the dashboard. They're trying to fix something that they really shouldn't be trying to fix. It needs a, a far larger attention. And then that dashboard and that system of record it's agnostic as to the owner. It doesn't matter who the security lead is for that organization. As soon as one's out and another's in, you still have the same dashboard and you still have the same resources at your fingertips. So that's an incredible thing. You can't do this on an Excel spreadsheet and hope to be successful. And that's a great point. And we have more challenges than we've had previously, but we also have more technological enablement. I mean, I think that's a big thing that DCSA is pushing with Invis and their technological push and saying like, hey, tech can help this. It's human plus technology. It's not either one, but we have a lot of things that we can use and apply to help enable our security professionals to do their jobs better. And you definitely want to be taking advantage of those things. <laughs> because, you know, and I always push back, you know, we used to have the chatter about how, you know, oh, do we want all of this technology underpinning, you know, this human aspect of personnel security? I think we expect it now. I mean, we've all watched The Social Dilemma. We know that technology is out there and it's doing a specific function. And I think employees know that this continuous vetting piece is happening and monitoring what they're doing. And so how can we layer on all the different aspects of technology? If you really think about the electronic, the digital age that we're in right now, which is probably 15 years old, maybe. You're talking now that, that the most recent statistic I heard that people are spending 12 hours of their day in a digital environment. And, and we are 2.0 million years as humans on this earth. Only recently have we had such an enormous cultural shift to a digital environment where we're not spending as much time face-to-face. We have a wider circle of people we know, but we also leave a wider circle of indicators and you know footprints as to what we're intending to do. So there's something happening in our own psyches as a, as a people because of the amount of time we're spending on social media and in a digital environment. And I think to not monitor that would be foolhardy. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Tom Langer, for joining us for this episode and for talking about this important topic. I think insider threat is certainly not going away. I think it's a the critical way to protect your workforce and your company is to make sure that you have a good insider threat training program. And there are a ton of resources out there. You mentioned some of those, and we'll certainly include those in the show notes. So you don't have to do it alone. There are companies, resources, things out there to help you. And thank you again for this conversation, for helping me unpack this topic a little bit more, Tom. SIM Software is the leading provider of industrial security information management software to the government and defense industries. The flagship product, SIMS, includes a comprehensive insider threat utility and has been protecting classified and high-value information for security stakeholders since 1983. 
Welcome back to Security Clearance Insecurity. I'm attorney Sean Bigley, and I'm here with my co-host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. We're talking this segment about the perils of online pharmacies and prescription drug misuse. And Lindy, the first thing that comes to mind when I think about this, and it's a horrible epidemic really, is prescription painkillers and the number of people who have gotten hooked on these things in recent years, the opioid epidemic, people who never in a million years thought that they were going to be an addict. They have a surgery, they have an injury, get these prescription painkillers, and then before they know it, they're hooked. I think that's something that we don't talk enough about in the cleared community is, is this something that you've seen come up on clearance jobs? So I've seen certainly somewhat more questions about it. Unfortunately, like you said, it can kind of be kind of a a hidden issue. You can not necessarily disclose it. And I think it's one of those things that, you know, potentially comes up. I mean, it's not like the prevalence of marijuana where, you know, we know that that's, there's a rise in folks using that, but we, you know, the policies are, are at least somewhat clear now. If you're hooked on opioids or something else, you can kind of keep that under wraps for a while. And then it, again, it might come up if you're going through a polygraph process and you're saying, hey, I have, you know, I have this issue or what about prescription drug abuse or issues? I would say the most common by far question we get about the prescription drug issue is the Adderall use in young people now who are applying for a security clearance and then wondering about listing that on their SF-86 as well. So can yeah, can you maybe speak to that? Do you think people are disclosing these issues on the SF-86? Would you recommend that? First of all, I, I think for anybody listening, it's important to understand that the misuse of prescription drugs is disclosable when you're applying for a security clearance. It is something that can preclude someone from getting a clearance just as cocaine use or heroin or even you know marijuana. The reality is, as you point out, a lot of folks who are misusing prescription drugs, they kind of can keep it under wraps. And I, I think that part of the reason for that is folks are in denial that they have a problem. I think it's a lot easier to be in denial. I think that you know we see a lot of high-functioning addicts where people are misusing prescription painkillers. For all intents and purposes, they're still going about a lot of their daily life. And so people who know them may look at them and say, well, you know, they look fine to me. So that's where it doesn't always get picked up in this process. But eventually, you got to pay the piper. And it's a tough situation. The Adderall piece of this, obviously, you know, that's a, a little different in the sense that, you know, it's not the same class of drugs. We've seen this lately as well in very weird contexts. I just recently learned that a Apparently, grinding up Adderall pills and snorting them is a thing. To my knowledge, doesn't do anything differently to your body, whether you snort it or take it as a pill. We get these kind of scenarios and these questions about things like this on a fairly regular basis. And one of the, one of the ways that it often comes up, one of the questions that often we broach with our clients is, how are you getting these things? Because if you have a valid prescription, let's say for a prescription, you know, for a painkiller, an opioid, usually those things are very tightly controlled. The doctor who prescribes it, you know, they know or they're supposed to know that these are highly addictive. And so they give very small uh, windows where they say, you know, we're going to write you this prescription, you know, post-surgery, but you can only take it for five days or, or you know, just very small windows where the person is supposed to kind of get over the the hurdle of the the real excruciating pain and then they're supposed to transition to you know some over the counter non addictive drug 
but that doesn't always happen. And so then, you know, we learn, for example, sometimes that the person is, uh, you know, seeing numerous doctors and, you know, Dr. A doesn't know about Dr. B, C, D, E. They're going to all, you know, three, four, five, six doctors getting the same prescription and going and filling them at different pharmacies. And that's how they're going about this. Uh, eventually, that that often gets caught when that happens or, or when they start to see the writing on the wall. Sometimes these folks switch to online pharmacies. This has been something that, you know, really has proliferated in recent years. I've written about it on clearance jobs, perils of online pharmacies. What we've had some folks tell us is, well, geez, I didn't realize that this online pharmacy that I was, you know, purchasing drugs from was, uh, you know, not legitimate. You know, that may be true. The government looks at it and says, well, there were some real (laughs) obvious, in our view, red flags that it wasn't legitimate and we think you knew it or you should have known it. And some of those examples are poor English, a spelling and grammar, payment that's only accepted by virtual currency, rudimentary website substance and functionality, cut rate or volume pricing. Those are all kind of red flag indicators that maybe this pharmacy that you're dealing with online is not legit. And they're either selling you stolen or generic versions of the real medications, or they're selling you something entirely unknown. But either way, you know, you're taking a big risk by putting that stuff in your body. You know, if it's overseas, which is often the case, you're also potentially facing, you know, issues of of drug trafficking where, you know, you could get nailed if the government picks this stuff up in transit um, when it crosses the border, which we've seen as well. So all of that is to say that these are some real serious weighty issues that we deal with. And, you know, if you are a clearance holder who has, you know, any sort of addiction or you think you're heading in that direction, whether it be prescription painkillers or, you know, anything else, you got to get help and you got to do it now. Well, and I think the online pharmacies is just a very interesting piece, you know, and, and when you mentioned that, I it did make me think I have certainly with COVID seen a lot more folks, there has been a rise in the kind of this online pharmaceutical aspect with the legitimate side of it, you know, through your insurance company, you're sponsored as well as a very much illegitimate side of it. So even if you're trying to, you know, you, you want a drug that maybe you have been prescribed or or something, I think it's worth taking some due diligence and not necessarily getting, you know, the cheapest product on the market or getting something that might, you know, again, especially that hasn't been prescribed to you, which I, I have heard of folks doing that as well. Even if it's not an opioid or Adderall, but you're just like, again, looking to use the benefit of the the free market web to order a pharmaceutical, this could put yourself in an issue that you don't want to be in as a security clearance holder. Yeah. And, you know, to that point, one thing that you know, the folks that we've seen who have gotten involved with this stuff don't think about until it's too late is drug testing. If you take a drug test and you pop positive for any of the prohibited substances, there's oftentimes very little that we can do in the way of defense to that. There are, you know, exceptions and there are certainly cases where the lab mixes up samples or there's chain of custody issues or there's other defenses that, you know, we can raise. By and large, a positive drug test is a difficult thing to deal with. And If you have a valid prescription for something, that's fine. But the problem that we see, and we we see this often in cases involving CBD products, which I know we've talked about previously, is if you're buying something from a less than reputable source, you don't really know what's in there. So yes, maybe you have a valid prescription for, but if you're buying it from a shady online pharmacy, you don't know if there's something else laced in there 
that is now going to cause you to pop positive on a drug test. And, you know, you walk in there and say, well, gee, here's my prescription. And they say, well, that's nice, but that's, you, you didn't just test positive for that. You test positive for something else too. And then, you know, you, you really are going to be struggling to explain, you know, how that happened. And believe it or not, we've actually had a couple of cases over the years where we've had to go get an independent laboratory analysis done of whatever the person was taking that they had purchased from a vendor or a pharmacy, whatever, and demonstrate or try to demonstrate that this is the reason for the test, the, the positive test results. So it's not a fun situation. It's not something that you really want to put yourself in if you can avoid it. And obviously, prescription drug prices in the US are out of control. And I think you know most people would agree with that. So I, I get the temptation, you know, for for some folks to go online and, and seek out prescription drugs from overseas destinations. Anybody who's thinking of doing that just really needs to understand that there is a significant risk not only obviously to their health, but to their clearance as well. Yeah. And I just want to touch on briefly to you mentioned the rehab piece of it. I think we've seen this kind of big shift in the mental health component saying like, hey, getting help is a positive step. Like the government will not penalize you for seeking mental health treatment. I would like to hope that the same would apply if you find yourself in a prescription drug abuse situation, just because there's, again, there's, you can kind of hide that. And so I don't want stigma to stop someone from getting help. I think going to rehab or finding a way to address a prescription drug issue would be seen as a positive and certainly far superior than popping hot on a drug test and absolutely losing your security clearance. So folks should be proactive about that. And even if it's not um, necessarily going to to come up in a regular conversation, just knowing taking proactive steps to address an issue is generally considered a mitigating factor, whatever it is. Yeah, this is a huge um, point and something that, you know, I think a lot of people are just inherently resistant to because there's this this deeply ingrained fear that, you know, why do I want to tell the government something that they don't know? And, and this, this sort of, well, maybe I can white knuckle it, you know, through it kind of mentality. And, and that's not something that, that really ends well for the vast majority. I would say pretty much everybody who's tried it. The best advice that I would give anybody who thinks they may have a prescription drug issue is to echo exactly that and, and just say, look, you know, proactivity is the name of the game here. You know, yes, you are going to alert the government that you have a problem. If you are disappearing and going to rehab for weeks, there's, there's no question about that. From a clearance standpoint, it is far, far easier for us to defend that and say, look, this person has acknowledged that they have a problem. They've gotten help. They have, you know, come out the other end in a much better place. And for example, they're willing to accept uh, monitoring where, you know, they're going to do a random drug test every 30 days for the next 12 months at their own expense. And, uh, you know, if they pop positive, they're agreeing to an automatic revocation of their clearance. That's something that, you know, threads the needle sometimes and gets the job done versus the government finding out the hard way, you know, oh, we found him, you know, slumped over his steering wheel on his lunch break because he overdosed. I mean, good luck with that. That's that's not a, a winnable case typically. So proactivity, that's that's definitely the way to go here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation.
Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.